Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Heidi Pearson. She is a researcher at the University of Alaska. How are you doing today, Heidi? I'm doing fine, Erica. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for being here. So tell us about yourself. Where are you from? um, And how did you get into studying cetaceans? Okay, well, I'm originally from Iowa. And then I did my undergraduate at Duke University and my PhD at Texas A&M. And it was actually back in high school, though, when I first got involved with marine biology. I took a course in marine biology and we got scuba certified and went snorkeling. And so, you know, a bunch of landlocked kids got to experience the ocean. And then as an undergrad, I further focused on marine biology and did some work with marine mammalogy at the Duke University Marine Lab. And then my PhD at Texas A&M, I focused on sea otter behavioral ecology and then dusky dolphin behavioral ecology. And so that was my my foray into the world of cetaceans was through my PhD work with Dr. Berndt Versig. And from there, I got a position at the Whale Center of New England, a small nonprofit in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And that's where I first started working with humpback whales. And that was in 2008. And I'm fortunate to still work with humpback whales as one of my study species today. And so the long or the short answer is that is a series of stepping stones that got me to my current field of study with cetaceans and marine mammal behavior and ecology and conservation. Very cool. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like half of marine biologists are from some are coastal and half of them are from the Midwest where they had no access to the ocean. So I always think that that's funny whenever I run into people like that. 
Yeah, I know a number of marine scientists from the Midwest, and I think there's just this allure to the ocean when you don't grow up close to it. Yeah, definitely. I'm from Ohio, so I'm I have the same sort of um same similar background. Um, but we're here today to discuss your paper whales in the carbon cycle can recovery remove carbon dioxide so tell us how you became interested in answering this research question so that idea or that line of research uh you know it's, it's wrapped up into the broad umbrella of, of climate change and so i live here in Juneau, alaska in southeast alaska and alaska is experiencing climate change at a rate that's two times higher than many other places in the world. We uh, have glaciers that are receding before our eyes. And, you know, I've lived here for almost 12 years now, and we have this pretty famous glacier called Mendenhall Glacier. Like millions of people go to see it every year. I actually see it about every day as I'm driving up and down the highway, and it's been noticeably shrinking. I mean, year after year, we have more and more rock face exposed. And so, you know, here in, in Alaska, we are maybe closer to some uh, other places on Earth to seeing and experiencing these climate changes. And so that's always, you know, at the forefront of my mind, just as a virtue of living here. And then studying the, the humpback whales, for example, thinking about how they are affected by climate change, but then also how they might also play a role in maybe helping to solve some of the climate problems as well. And so there was a, a paper in 2010 that I read by Joe Roman, who is now a close collaborator, the whale pump hypothesis, which states that whale uh, fecal matter might help to stimulate phytoplankton growth. And then taking that one step further, can that also help to sequester carbon? And of course, with climate change, we're thinking about how we can get more of that carbon out of the atmosphere into carbon sinks, the ocean being one of those. And so this idea was just really intriguing to me, thinking about climate change and marine mammals in another way, and then also thinking about climate change maybe in a more positive light, so to speak, thinking about a way to help, help address climate change and also our biodiversity crises overall. So it was just a really intriguing concept for me to think about, and I've been uh, working on it now for about 10, 10 years or so. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Do you know why Alaska is being impacted so much more than other places? Well, one of it is, is by virtue of our latitude. And so Arctic places in general are being impacted more. Um, I think one of the biggest things is because of the, the melting ice, you know, like Juneau, we are on this very narrow strip of land and we have this huge Juneau ice field bordering us on the east side mm -hmm. and then on the west side is the ocean and we're actually landlocked because you can't drive here you have to fly or take a, a boat and anyway so this Juneau ice field has 30 or so glaciers coming down from it and you know there's these big sheets of ice which have massive power to impact weather and climate patterns and so I think that's a big reason for it is just we have so much ice mm -hmm. and when that melts, there's a cascading effect of changes. And then further north, uh, where you have permafrost, you know, as that starts to melt, that's going to cause cascading 
effects as well. Okay. Very interesting. So you've been working on this for 10 or so years now. So how did you go about conducting the study that we are talking about today? So the study that we are talking about today, uh, it's a it's an opinion paper that we published in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution. And this is a, a review paper in essence where we brought together the current state of knowledge of what we know about the role of whales in the carbon cycle. And so it is a very concise synthesis of a body of work from about 2010. That paper by Joe Roman I mentioned, there's also a paper by um, Andy Pershing, Steve Nichol. There were some seminal papers in 2010 that kind of all came out at the same time. And then um, through, through the current day. And so how this paper came about is, um, so there's 10 of us on the paper and we're all working in different aspects of whales and, and carbon and just an attempt to bring together all these disparate pieces of information into one concise package. And also we do present some, some new data. It's not new data collection, but it's a reanalysis with updated information. And um, our reason for wanting to bring it together into one concise package is because we found that this is a pretty intriguing idea for scientists and also policymakers and, you know, thinking about whales and climate change. And so we just wanted a concise package that we could that we could direct people to, to say this is the current state of knowledge. And also these are all the things we don't know. Mm -hmm. So what is our current state of knowledge about the role of humpback whales in the carbon cycle? So we look at humpback whales and the other whales, which are collectively called the great whales. And these are the baleen whales plus the sperm whales. And these were the large whales that were decimated by industrial whaling. Um, and so the current state of knowledge is that we have a pretty solid understanding of what we call their direct carbon pathways. So this is how they directly store carbon in their bodies while they're alive. And then when they die, the, that carbon in their carcasses sinks to the seafloor. And that's fairly easy to, to quantify those direct pathways. The other pathways are the indirect pathways. And these are how whales indirectly impact the carbon cycle. And simply put, it's through whales excreting waste products like poop, urine, slough skin, uh, placentas in the case of breeding females and how these waste products can be rich in nutrients that phytoplankton need to live and grow. And then that uh, just stimulates the rest of the food web, including carbon sequestration. And so that those indirect pathways are things that we really need to understand better. But in the paper, we do present what we do know already about the carbon values of some of those indirect pathways too. Okay, great. So um, potentially our humpback whales could help us reduce our amount of carbon is essentially the thought? Well, that is, I would say, an, an overstatement. So in this paper, we are very careful to not 
oversell this idea of what we call whale carbon. So the ability of whales to aid in carbon storage and sequestration. And we know that they have some ability to, to help in removing CO2 from the atmosphere, but based on our current understanding, um, or the current data, I should say, it's, it's fairly minuscule compared to uh, the overall, you know, global carbon cycle and other greenhouse gas um, mitigation strategies. So can they help? Yes, humpback whales and other great whales, they can help. But what we don't fully understand is how big of a help they will be. You know, so taking an analogy to humans, like every little bit helps, right? So we, we try to drive fuel efficient cars and turn off our light switches and, uh, recycle and do all these things and one person alone isn't going to make a dent but if everyone does it then hopefully we get somewhere and that's what we're trying to figure out with the whales is what is their total carbon power um, collectively gotcha so how can you get this information like i'm curious as far as like do you collect poop and like look at poop samples or how do you find out uh, the answer to this question. Yeah, yeah. And so you're referring to those indirect pathways, which we um, know less about. And that's where we're focusing some of our current research efforts. So absolutely, we do a lot of, of poop collection. We get it from the field. We also get it from stranded animals in necropsies. Mm -hmm. And I have a graduate student right now, Dana Block at University of Alaska Fairbanks. And she is doing just that. She's collecting poop from necropsies from uh, the field and then we're measuring the nutrient concentration like nitrogen and phosphorus and then she's doing incubation experiments and so she's getting seawater with phytoplankton in it and spiking that seawater with the whale poop and then we're seeing how much the phytoplankton grow and then we're going to do some estimations and calculations after that to try to figure out what that might mean in terms of carbon up uptake so that's one of the the field methods we're using is, yeah, scooping up poop. Awesome. Very cool. So based on this information, like, are there any like conservation recommendations or is this more of just kind of like, we're just collecting more information and this is what we know? Mm -hmm. Well, we want it to be more than just presenting information and of what we know and what we don't know because whales have the potential to have real carbon benefits and we know that aside from their carbon benefits that they are really important in helping to maintain overall ecosystem health we know that they help to maintain biodiversity we know that they have important nutrient cycling roles as well with with the poop deposition which i which i mentioned and we know that there's just lots of other good reasons to conserve whales as, you know, top predators, wide ranging umbrella species. Um, they have lots of intrinsic values as well. And so we advocate for the precautionary principle. So even if we can't put an exact carbon value on whales right now, we know that there's lots of other benefits we're going to get with their conservation with climate probably being one of them. So what's to lose from continuing to advocate for greater whale conservation 
and will get these known benefits into potential in addition to these potential climate benefits, which could be uh, larger than you know what we know right now. So we call this a low risk, low regret strategy. So there's no real risk in protecting whales and really no downside either. Absolutely. Um, and how is the population of humpback whales doing conservation wise that hang out in Alaska? The humpback whales in Alaska are part of the greater central North Pacific population. And they are divided into two what are called distinct population segments. And those distinct population segments are divided up because it depends on what breeding ground those humpback whales go to. So they're here in Alaska during the summer to feed, and then they migrate to the breeding grounds at low latitudes during the winter to, to breed and calve. And so we think about 90 to 95% of the whales in Southeast Alaska, where I work, uh, go to Hawaii. And that population segment is doing well. Uh, it was recently delisted. The Mexico population segment is still considered threatened, but that's about five to 10% of the whales that come here to Southeast. So overall, we think they're doing quite well, but I will say we do know they took a big hit during the marine heat wave or the blob that occurred in 2013 to 2016. Um, there was just reduced prey all over the North Pacific, and that had effects throughout the food chain on up to whales, to humpback whales. And so we, we believe that there was increased mortality during that time, and also fewer calves were born. And so we don't yet know actually what the full impact of that dip uh, due to the heat wave, but overall, um, the population is still probably doing okay. Okay, that's good to hear. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any like conservation recommendations for the public, like things that we could do on an individual and maybe even a collective level to help the humpback whales and other greater whales? Yes, yes. Well, there's some some main threats to to the the great whales that are pretty well known. So ship strikes are a big one. Uh, fishing gear entanglement is a big one as well. Every year in my study site here in Juneau, which is relatively small in the scheme of things, we see at least one entangled humpback whale and fishing gear. And that's, that's just really hard to see. Sometimes those whales free themselves. Sometimes a disentanglement team can get out to them, but oftentimes we don't know what happens to those whales. Um, other big threats are pollutants and, of course, climate change. But in terms of what the general public could do, I'm a bit, big advocate for uh, choosing to eat seafood sustainably because there's some seafood that is caught more sustainably than others. And there's a great program I can recommend out of Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's called mm -hmm. Seafood Watch. And every year, might even be twice a year, they they post an assessment of the most sustainable seafoods to eat, um, not just for whales, but for across the board for marine life. And so I really urge people to really choose their seafood wisely because um, what we are taking out of the ocean affects, you know, whales on, a, you know, 
fish on up to whales. So that was, that's one easy thing we could all do. Awesome. Um, a question that I always ask people and you can interpret this however you'd like to, but what can we learn from the whales? Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many things we, we can learn from them. So one of my, my passions in my studies of cetaceans is to look at their social lives and their friendships, so to speak. That's what I focused on for my PhD research with the dusky dolphins in New Zealand. And I am starting to analyze these long-term friendships in humpback whales here at my study site in Juneau. And what we're finding, uh, just very preliminary looks, is that they do have these long-term associations, or if we want to call them friendships. And if you think about these humpback whales, you know, they are they're migrating thousands of miles each way twice a year and they're not staying with the same individuals but they're coming back to the same areas each year to feed and they're reuniting with what we might call old friends mm -hmm. and it's really neat to see to see this and you know what's the nature of those associations i don't know it could, they could be feeding partners maybe they're social partners but the fact that they are recognizing one another and so to speak, choosing to spend time together after coming from, you know, very disparate regions is, is really cool. And so what we can learn from that is that we as humans are not the only social intelligent being out there that I think we have more in common with animals such as whales than, than most people think. Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting that you bring that up because I work on a whale watch boat in the Monterey Bay and oftentimes we will see whales that are not thought to be related hanging out together like year after year we see them together. So that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. I don't think the whales that we're seeing here hanging out together year after year are related either. You know, so it's really neat to think about that um, that happening in, in whale societies. Absolutely. Um, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, I guess the only other thing, going back to what the everyday person can do to help whales, it's just being aware of your carbon footprint overall. And you know, we we hear this, a lot of people hear this, and but it's worth being reminded that every little thing we do to reduce our own carbon footprint will help us as humans, but also whales and other organisms as well. So just, you know, keep up whatever you're doing with, with having a lower carbon um, footprint and it, every little bit's gonna help. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. It was great being on your show. Thanks for having me. For sure. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Tune in next week for another episode. Bye.